and welcome to our study as we continue to look at overcoming anxiety, uh, fear, and depression uh, with the power of the gospel. And uh, it's good to be with you again, Wes, after a little bit of a delay or a hiatus, maybe. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back and uh, looking forward to our discussion this evening. You know, up till now, we've pretty much exclusively been addressing depression. But tonight, we're going to address anxiety and fear. How would you differentiate between these three terms, depression, fear, and anxiety? Okay, so we've been talking about depression, and that's a more of a long-standing battle that Christians have with sadness, mm-hmm. with uh, perhaps even some internal anger at circumstances. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long descent, and, and it's a real battle that Christians have. Uh, and so we've given different definitions of of depression. As we look at anxiety and fear, they're, they're a little bit different. Um, and it just has to do with threats that we perceive, uh, either clear and present danger, uh, that would be fear, I would think, or potential danger in the future, that would be more anxiety. That's how I would unravel those two. But it ha- just has to do with the reaction that we have that has a physiological side, adrenaline, a heart heartbeat. Also, it has a mental side where it dominates our minds and our thoughts. And I think we're going to find as we discuss uh, that when it comes to the kinds of fears and anxieties that the Lord wants us to overcome, that what's positioned against them is faith. Mm-hmm. That faith and fear in this regard are seen to be opposites in the Bible. So we're going to talk about that tonight. That's helpful. You know, in previous weeks, we've drawn out uh, really how timely this discussion is related to depression, also regarding fear and anxiety. Okay, so we're in the era of COVID-19. It's been going on a long time now, uh, much, much longer than people thought it would last at the beginning. And uh, the numbers, uh, it seems, have surged back and the virus itself seems to be morphing or have morphed into different versions. Um, All of this makes people afraid or can make people afraid about um, their own health, the health of loved ones, uh, the effect that all of of this is having on society, the effect it's having on the economy. Then others just have questions about the information that we're getting about it, uh, the source of information, is it valid, um, and fears of being manipulated or being played um, by various entities that they don't trust. So there's a lot of temptation right now to fear in reference to COVID-19 than in terms of some of the uh, social unrest with racism, uh, with police issues, with defunding police, with what will you get six months from now when you call 911 if the police are defunded. People can very easily be anxious about that future. So there's a lot of things that have been challenged in our everyday life. Uh, the food supply. Remember early on the question about toilet paper? Yeah, yeah. And the run on toilet paper was based on fear. Yeah. And then, you know, then you had reasonable, not so much fear, but reasonable, like, what am I going to find on the shelf when I go to the supermarket? Um, the whole wearing of masks. It's, it's just we are right now in a culture where we're battling fear and anxiety. So it seems to be pretty relevant. Yeah, so clearly a relevant topic for us right now, but it's not a new thing either. This is something that throughout history people have dealt with. How has that been the case? Perhaps some examples. Of we have yeah, lots of examples in the Bible uh, in reference to the relationship between fear and, and faith. And, um, you know, there there are things that we that we have seen in the Bible, like you, you look at examples in the book of, uh, in the Gospels, let's say, uh, where the disciples are afraid, and we're going to go into some of those as the c- conversation unfolds. 
But even in the Old Testament, you think about um, the example of David running for his life before a murderous King Saul. And David had many, many human enemies. And he wrote a lot of Psalms about how he had to wrestle with his fears and overcome them. Uh, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. And so there's a, a direct juxtaposition of fear and faith again and again in the Bible. Mm -hmm. That fear comes and it is by faith that we overcome fear. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and start looking at some particular passages because mm -hmm. not only is fear spoken of as opposed to faith, but the Bible also talks about a different kind of fear. So maybe let's start yeah. there with okay. Proverbs 1.9. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Yeah. So what is this fear? What is the fear of the Lord and how is that the beginning of wisdom? Yeah, this is a very deep and powerful question. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's in, in Proverbs 9, 1 and also Proverbs 1, 7 also uh, address the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm. So wisdom and knowledge. You want to start and become a wise and knowledgeable person. Start with the fear of the Lord. So therefore, throughout the Bible, God fears or those who fear the Lord, etc. That's spoken of positively, very positively. So I think um, people have sought to address this by saying you're talking about an infinite being who created the universe by, a word of, uh, uh, by the word of his power. The gap between him and us is infinite and immeasurable. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is pure. Our lives are in his hands. There is a reasonable fear that even the holy angels have. And we'll try to understand what that fear is and what it isn't. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a, a sense of awe and reverence and respect of a God who holds your very existence in his hand at every moment, mm -hmm. that you need to know that and be aware of that. Then there's a reasonable fear that comes on in reference to the fact that we are sinners, that we have sinned against the the rule of this God, and we deserve to be condemned. Um, there's a reasonable fear of God's reaction to our sins that I think is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It's just like uh, we just talked about a moment ago with the hymn Amazing Grace. "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So what we have to do with the fear of the Lord is unravel those things that it is reasonable for us to think we will continue to feel even when there's no threat of condemnation even when there's no, no sin even with the holy angels, the archangels, that, that they actually do feel toward God. And then those things that are completely addressed in the atoning work of Christ and we need never feel again. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So we have to find a way to differentiate between those two. Those things that some people call a healthy reverence and awe, and then those things that have to do with punishment and condemnation, um, those we need to separate. Yeah. So let's take another example, a passage from uh, the Old Testament, Exodus twenty twenty. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So it okay. seems like along those lines, but how can we hold those two passages uh, in Proverbs and Exodus, how can we synthesize Right, them? those two things that I just tried to separate, those are very much woven together mm. in the experience at Sinai. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened at Sinai is that God called the people out of bondage in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They've already had that drama 
of ten plagues played out before their very eyes, in which God made a distinction between those who were his people and those who were not. But he made a very clear, he made it very clear to the Jews that they deserve to be treated the same as the Egyptians because they also were sinners. So clear example is the tenth plague, the plague on the firstborn. The Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The blood of the of the sacrifice had to be painted on the doorposts and the lintels of the Jews to keep the avenging angel from killing their firstborn as well. Hmm. So the clear idea is you're no different. Only because of the atonement are you free from fear of punishment for sin. So, uh, But the whole thing that Moses presented to Pharaoh was, let my people go that they may worship me in the desert. So they go out, they go through the Red Sea crossing in which they survive and Pharaoh's army is destroyed in an instant. They have all this display of God as a, as a powerful ruler. Now they're at Sinai. The time has come for the worship of the Lord. And what does he do? He gives them a warning that they are to consecrate themselves and free themselves from all sinful patterns and even from marital relations and other things because they are gonna meet with the Lord in, in three days. So they're consecrating themselves. Then a a barrier is put around the base of the mountain so that no one would go up on the mountain because if anyone goes up on the mountain, they should be killed. Not a hand be laid on them like they're being electrocuted up but with a third rail because if you touch them, you'll be killed too. They must be killed by stoning or by being shot with an arrow. And, and then the day that they're going to meet with the Lord, there's a violent earthquake and a dark cloud and God descends in fire on the top of the mountain and the, and the mountain and the earth shake and God speaks saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. So with all of that going on, what was God going for in the hearts of his people? What did he want them to feel? Fear. Fear. No doubt about it. Hmm. What kind of fear? Well, that's where the two are actually woven together. He wants them to know how great God is the infinite majesty of a God who could do those kinds of things. But he also wants them to fear sinning. And he says it openly. He says, do not be afraid. Huh. Wait, <laughs> hey, wait. Do not be afraid. And then he says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. So there is, while we live, I think even for us as Christians, a reasonable fear of what will happen to us if we sin. We should fear sin. We should fear temptation. We should pray, lead us not into temptation. We should fear the discipline of God. But there's some fears we should not have. And we'll talk about that based on some New Testament verses. There's some fears we should no longer have or else we'll be betraying God's faithfulness in Christ and the atoning work. So at Sinai, God is teaching us to fear him that we would realize that he is the sovereign God who rules over every instant of the day and every square inch of his creation. That is a God we need to respect and we need to fear sinning against. Absolutely. So if I can summarize Exodus 20, 20. <laughs> Fearing God, you need fear nothing else. But if you don't fear God, you need to fear everything mm. because God rules over everything car accident could happen, heart attack could happen, uh, economic things can happen. God controls everything. But conversely, if you truly rightly fear the Lord, none of those things you need fear at all. It doesn't mean they won't happen to you. We'll talk about that. Sure. But you don't need to fear them. Yeah. 
So how does Proverbs 28.1 support this idea? Okay. So it says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Okay, so the wicked really have reason to flee at every moment. All right? And they are essentially fearful and should be. You know, sometimes you see unbelievers with bumper stickers, uh, which you know present how fearless they are. Ain't scared, I saw one of them. <laughs> and all this... But it's like, man, if you understood, if you really are an unbeliever and you, you don't, you really need to fear the judgment of God. It's like sinners in the hands of an angry God. You are walking across a, a basically uh, a yawning fire pit on a rotting plank. And the only thing keeping you from falling into, into hell is the arbitrary will of God. And he is incensed at your sin. That's sinners in the hands of an angry God. There's a sense of fear there. But there is a reasonable fearfulness that the wicked should have. They they flee and they're fearful. And But the righteous, knowing that they have a right relationship with God and that God orchestrates all circumstances of their life and that they're not actually even afraid to die, mm-hmm. they're as bold as a lion. Yeah. So that's it's a beautiful statement. That is helpful. Mm-hmm. So um, the wrong kind of fear, mm-hmm. I'm talking a lot about how fear can be beneficial, but the yeah. wrong kind of fear can be paralyzing. Yeah. Proverbs 22 talks about the sluggard and it says, uh, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, or I will be murdered in the streets. Yeah. What is going on in this passage? Well, that's, a, I think, probably a picture of anxiety. So I'm, mm-hmm. I differentiate between fear and anxiety. Fear has to do with a clear and present danger. Like the disciples. Like there's actually a lion. Right, right. The disciples in the boat during the storm, professional fishermen, been on that lake their whole lives. They think they're about to drown. That's clear and present danger. There's, there, that's fear. Anxiety is what might happen, mm-hmm. what could happen. And here the sluggard is a lazy person who's basically paralyzed and uses fears as an excuse. Well, I'm not going to do that because that might happen. You think about an unemployed man who needs to get a job to provide for his family, but he doesn't make any calls or send out any resumes because he's afraid of rejection. So, you know, he's afraid of what might happen. So that there's that sense in which fears, anxieties can paralyze people, even sluggards, lazy people from acting. So fear is all around us and we have to battle it at every level. Well, let's look at some New Testament passages. So we have verses like 1 John 4, 18. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Mm-hmm. Or again, Romans eight fifteen says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, mm-hmm. but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Mm-hmm. So how would you define a proper, healthy Fear of the Lord for us as we uh, look at these passages. Okay, so 1 John 4 and Romans 8 both seem to be addressing a fear that the gospel should move us beyond, permanently, decisively beyond. Okay, so I think it couples with Romans 8.1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we as Christians should not fear being condemned to hell. Once we have been justified by faith, we, we know that God is faithful and just. It would be unjust for God to send anyone to hell who has trusted in his son, Jesus. That would be unjust because he made a promise. If you trust in me, I will forgive you. If you trust in my son, I will forgive all of your sins. There's no condemnation. So I would say it would be dishonoring to God to say, despite the atoning work of Christ, despite the fact that he shed his blood on the cross for sinners, and despite the fact that I have called on his name in genuine repentance and faith, 
I still think I'm going to be condemned to hell. That would be dishonoring to God. Be saying that he is unfaithful or unjust and will not forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is dishonoring to God. Yet, I do not think that 1 John 4 says there's nothing we should ever fear again in relation to God. I've already said a moment ago, we should fear temptation. We should fear future sin. We should fear our sin habits now. And that God will discipline us for those. We should fear the effect that our sins will have on our ministry and our fruitfulness. We should fear that if we fall into sexual immorality, we'll be disqualified from the ministry. I think that's a reasonable fear, and that fear keeps us from sinning. So I actually think 1 John 4, 18, if you look at it carefully, what he's saying there is he's saying, the one who fears has not been made perfect in love. Are you made perfect in love, Wes? Would you say, I, I've become perfect in love? No. Is your love for God and for Christ perfect? No, it's imperfect, and you know it. So there's a certain measure of fear of what our changeable, fickle hearts will do, right? Yeah. So while we're being sanctified and while we're in danger from the world of flesh and the devil, should we not fear sin and flee to Christ every day? Say, Lord, I don't want to sin. Lead me not into temptation. So, But in heaven, will we have any fear? Will we be made perfect in love in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. No fear in heaven. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I think, you know, the language that you've used before and that we talk about a lot, this idea of being on a journey, there's this sense of a destination that we're aiming at. I think that that helps us. Uh, you know, you don't take these off ramps uh, into areas of sin or unrighteousness. You long to be made perfect. And so it keeps you on the path, so to yeah. speak. I think the Bible ministers fear to Christians. Hmm. I think the book of Hebrews is an epistle of warning. Yeah. It gives Christians serious warnings about apostasy. Hmm. So we don't apostatize. It gives us warnings, also not just Hebrews, the New Testament, it gives us warnings of wasting a day or wasting our lives. We fear that and don't want to waste our lives. We want to make the most of it. But we can't be walking in fear all the time. We need to be aware of the possibility of sin and failure and just go to God and say, by your grace today, I'm not going to give in to those sins. By your grace, I'm going to be as maximally fruitful as I can be. So let's circle back to what you mentioned a little earlier in our time, where fear and faith are often pitted against each other. What are some examples of this that we might look to? Well, I alluded to some of them. Uh, I think the book of uh, Psalms will give you many, many examples of the psalmist driving out fear with faith. Okay, uh, so I quoted this, but I'm going to read it. Uh, Psalm 56, 3 and 4. Mm -hmm. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. So there it is. That's a clear example of fear pitted against uh, faith or faith pitted against fear. In God, whose word I praise, I will trust, I will not be afraid. So that's a great one. Yeah. Memorize that one. That's Say that. really helpful. All yeah. right. You know, so I, I think the whole book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is, is an example of moving from fear to faith. Mm. Right? So the prophet Habakkuk sees the corruptions of his own people and the wickedness of the society. And God says, I'm going to tell you something in your day that you would not believe either if you're told. I am going to send the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to destroy this place. And so all of these wicked people that you see in the corrupt society, it's going to be leveled. Uh, did that comfort Habakkuk? Did he say, oh, well, good. That's not... No, yes. he, he went, what I would say, out of the frying pan into the fire. He's like, how could you do this? 
the That's Babylonians. Not what I had in mind. Yeah, like, the Babylonians, your pagans, and it's like, you know, etc. And so if you read all three chapters of Habakkuk, you can see his heart pounding. You can see fear. But then he transitions to see God's grand, glorious picture and how in, in Habakkuk 2 it's like three stages the righteous will live by faith so I'm going to save you Habakkuk I'm going to justify you and save you from everything by your faith and then secondly the wicked pagan nations that you so fear you shouldn't fear them because I'm ruling over them and I'm going to bring each of them to judgment and then thirdly big picture I'm building a kingdom for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea everything's going to turn out well so you should move from fear to faith so that's Habakkuk but then even more, you see it in the New Testament. Yeah. New Testament, absolutely, you see examples of this. So, for example, J Jairus comes to Jesus and his daughter is dying, not yet dead. And while Jesus is en route, he has numerous interactions, including a woman that's got an issue of blood, and she, he stops interacts with her. And once that's done, then a messenger or messengers come to Jairus saying, don't trouble the teacher anymore, your daughter is dead. And Jesus, hearing that, turns to Jairus and says, do not fear only believe. He directly pits fear against faith. Yeah. I love that. As I've been reading uh, the New Testament recently, specifically the Gospels, the number of times that people are charged not to be afraid. Yeah. The honesty of Scripture is so helpful because it's just recognizing that's our reaction. Yeah. We, you know, angel appears to make a declaration like, uh, that's fear. Yeah. Uh, something's going on in your life. You're facing even something that is devastating, the loss of a child. And, and our reaction is naturally fear. But scripture speaks to that and calls us to believe and to not fear, even though yeah. that can very easily happen in our lives. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, you mentioned the angel. I, I remember mentioning a sermon. It seems like an angel school up in heaven. It's like when you're sent as a messenger to humans, <laughs> the first thing you must always say. Remind them not to fear. Fear not. <laughs> wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. I love the KJV uh, version of the shepherds uh, outside Bethlehem. And uh, they were, the glory of the Lord shone around and they were, quote, sore, sore afraid. afraid. Yeah. <laughs> It's like a physical pain. Wow. In my <laughs> well, what did they, you know, I mean, we expect that there's, it's like the night becomes like day around this single heavenly being. And they're like, you know, there's absolute terror. Yeah. So, you know, one of the examples you mentioned of fear in the New Testament is Jesus in the boat. How does that help us as we yeah. think about well, you remember what happens. Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the boat. Mark tells us about the cushion. I love that little detail. It's like, why did Jesus sleep on a cushion? Answer, because it's more comfortable. The incarnation, the realities of the incarnation, but Jesus is asleep. Mm -hmm. And the storm comes up. And you need to realize how poignant this is, because as I mentioned, the disciples, uh, many of them, and not all of them, but many of them were professional fishermen yeah. on that very, very late. And apparently, from what I've been told, the... Um, the effect of the winds is magnified by the by the topography, the geography of the region. It's like a it's like a bowl, and it becomes absolutely perilous. It's similar to the Great Lakes, uh, Superior, and all that. The the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Apparently, the the storms on the Great Lakes, because they're bounded by you know the surrounding areas of the Great Lakes, are are fierce and terrifying. Mm -hmm. So here are professional fishermen on that very sea. They knew the Sea of Galilee. The winds and the waves are overwhelming and the boat is filling with water. In their professional opinion, they're about to sink and will certainly drown. Mm. Jesus is asleep and continues to be asleep. So they go and wake him saying, Lord, don't you care that we're about to drown? Don't you care? Jesus is incarnate because he cares. 
So the real issue there is, you know, Jesus gets up and rebukes them and rebukes the wind and the waves. He rebukes them for being afraid of the wind and the waves and rebukes the wind and the waves and it instantly becomes calm. Mm -hmm. Now the real issue is, what is Jesus' mentality there while he's sleeping? How does he sleep through the storm? And the answer is he trusts his father. And so should they have. Yeah. And so what I, I've lampooned their, the attitude of the disciples before. Jesus is incarnate by the Holy Spirit, by the Virgin Mary, makes it to age 32, and then dies in a tragic boating accident. Heaven is shocked. The angels say, what? I thought his hands and feet were going to be pierced. It's not going to happen. No. <laughs> there is zero chance the incarnate Son of God is going to die in a tragic boating accident. Yeah. But yet note, the Lord through the wind and the waves pushes the disciples right to the brink. Mm -hmm. It is not unreasonable for them to think they're going to drown. Yeah. But they need to realize who they are. They're chosen by, by Jesus praying all night to be apostles. They're not going to die that night. Mm -hmm. They're with him. doesn't mean they're never going to drown. Let me say an important thing. You know, Jesus rebukes their fears and all that. I do believe that there are literal, clear, and present dangers. We still shouldn't be afraid of them. You're like, well, that's unreasonable. Should they have been afraid of drowning? I say no. The Moravians, in the midst of the Atlantic, when the ship was about to go down and John Wesley, seemingly in an unconverted state at that point, looked at them and they're just praying and singing hymns. Was the Apostle Paul afraid during the storm in Acts 27? Didn't seem to be. So you're like, so you actually shouldn't fear drowning. That's what I'm saying. You shouldn't fear drowning. Why? because you'll be raised in a resurrection body. So I remember something that I was very afraid of happened in my life at one point. The very thing that I'd feared occurred, I won't say what, but it happened. And um, I remember finding a proverb that said, what the wicked fear over, or what the wicked dreads overtakes them, what the righteous desire will be granted. In a very snarky, sarcastic way, I circled that and put the date of, of the thing God didn't say anything. He's patient with us as we learn. Years later, when I saw how all of those life issues have been resolved very beautifully, I saw that snarky date that I'd written next to that proverb, what the, what the wicked dread overtakes and what the righteous desire will be granted. Mm. I saw that what I desire had been granted. And then the Lord spoke to me saying, you should dread nothing. Don't dread anything. And then I thought, wow, all of the outcomes that we fear, like the death of a child through disease or drowning in the Sea of Galilee, whatever, all of those things have been answered by the resurrection of Christ. And God may will for some very painful things to actually happen to us. Still don't fear them. Trust in the Lord. So that's the clear and present danger and the fears. We need to learn how as best we can. doesn't mean that we don't bail with the, you know, or do what we can right. to survive right. the storm. There's vigorous activity. Paul's very active. Yeah. Vigorous activity, but still no dread and terror in your heart. I think the object of our trust is important. You know, there's we put on seat belts in our car, mm -hmm. um, but ultimately our, our hope is not in a seat belt. But it's still something that we do. So there are practical things that we do because of clear and present danger. Sure. But ultimately we know that we have no need to fear driving down the road to our destination because we trust in God. Yeah. And there will be physiological moments like you you hit some black ice mm -hmm. and all four wheels are skidding and you're heading toward, uh, you can shout 
Jesus help us, things like that, and your heart, that's going to happen. I don't call that fear. I'm, I'm calling fear a settled condition of the mind based on the clear and present danger that forgets God, basically. That's helpful. So any practicalities of how we can see our faith drive out fear before we talk a little more about anxiety? Yeah, we need to talk about anxiety. But fear, I would just say you've got to battle. What I just said is it's, it's, it's a clear and present danger that causes a mental state mm. that forgets God. That's what I think is a fear that dishonors God. What I would say is you've got to battle that with scripture. Memorize scripture. Put on your spiritual yeah. armor. Talk to yourself like we talked about in depression. Sure. Fight saying God is in control of this circumstance. He knows what's happening. If he wills that we drown, we'll drown and we'll go to heaven. In the meantime, let's do what we can to bail or keep the boat afloat and do what we need to do, but let's not fear. And then you quote, when I'm afraid, I will trust in him and God whose word I praise. Just quote scripture. Yeah, yeah, that's Psalm 56, three and four passage. Great way yeah. to memorize. I think that's what I'm gonna do this afternoon <laughs> okay. as I'm getting this ready. I'm gonna memorize that passage. That's awesome. good, that's good. So what about anxiety? Okay. What is it about uh, anxiety? Why is it so dishonoring to God? Okay, so the dis distinction I'm making, I don't know if you'll buy it, but I think it's helpful, is the difference between fear connected to clear and present danger, mm -hmm. anxiety connected to potential dangers sure. that may or may not happen, mm -hmm. and most of them never do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what is anxiety? It's a fear that grips you about something that may happen in the future that you don't want to happen. And so we have to look at, at what anxiety is. I've defined anxiety before as a very bad use of a beautiful gift from God, mm. and that is imagination. <laughs> Twisted. You're imagining yeah. the future. Mm. I also found that anxiety is the direct opposite of hope. Mm. Hope is a settled assurance in your heart that the future is bright. Mm. What is anxiety? It's a settled determination determin that, that the future is dark. <laughs> it's exactly the opposite. opposite. So. Hmm. That's helpful. Yeah, I was reading Matthew 6 even this morning and thinking about how that follows on on a passage where we're told that we can't serve two masters. Even. Right. So thinking about where our hope is, yeah. so I think related to fear in that sense, but then also looking to the future and thinking, I don't know what I'm going to eat. I don't know. It's it, The Lord will not provide. There's yeah. almost this doubt that, that creeps in with anxiety. Uh, and it's Lord's extremely case. dishonoring to God. I think we, we begin our battle against anxiety, not clear and present danger, but a potential danger by realizing just how dishonoring it is to God. It's similar to murmuring and complaining. Mm. We talked about contentment. Mm -hmm. Murmuring and complain, com complaining is not okay because it really dishonors God. So also does anxiety. You're really looking God right in the face and saying, I don't think that you control my future. I have to do it myself. And, and so I don't trust you for the future. It's very dishonoring to God. Yeah. I think that it's possible that fear and anxiety actually reveal idols in our heart. How might that be so? What are some yeah. things that maybe we are clinging to that are idols? Yeah, I, it's all, I think it's all idolatry. It's all based on earthly circumstances. Mm. And, and you even see this with Christians. Like, I know, I know I'm going to be resurrected in a resurrection body with glory in a new heaven, new earth. I know all that. But I'm like, what? <laughs> what could even compare to that? Yeah. Well, there's some things I want in this life. All right, good. Let's zero in on that. Mm. Let's zero in on that. What is it you want in this life that's being threatened by this anxiety. Well, I want my, my children to grow up to a ripe old age and be fruitful and get married. And I'd like to see the, the wedding. I'd like to be at the wedding or I'd like to be at their graduation. I'd like my child to, you know, all of these things. All of them are good. Mm -hmm. 
but all of those good earthly desires can become idols. So I think we can appropriately set our heart on those things and love them and desire them without them becoming idols, but they are constantly pushing at the boundaries mm. and wanting, it seems, to become idols and captivate our hearts in ways that are unhelpful. One of the clear ways that you can see if something is an idol is if you're anxious over it about the future. It's acting like an idol at that point. Yeah. I mentioned uh, a moment ago, Matthew 6. How does Jesus' instruction about anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount help us in more detail? Then? Right, Matthew six twenty-five to 34 is the home base, I think, text for battling anxiety. Jesus goes at it hard. And what's amazing about that, as you remember the text says, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, are you, are you not worth much more than they? And uh, why do you worry about clothes? Uh, look at the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow, worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you know how many how many arguments and persuasions are against anxiety in that package? First of all, notice how logical it is. Jesus reasons anxiety away. He's saying it's illogical for you as a believer in Christ to be anxious. How do you know he's using logical language? The how much more phraseology, isn't that logic? If X is true, how much more will Y be true? It's a it's an argument from the, I, I like to articulate it this way, from the more surprising to the less surprising. It is very surprising that God cares for the grass of the field, which is burned and makes it so beautiful. It's less surprising that he takes care of his children. Made in his image. Made in his image. Wow. So it's an argument, a logical argument. So first of all, Jesus is effectively saying, anxiety is illogical. It's unreasonable. It's also faithless, oh, you of little faith. He, he just works on it. So I would commend that section going step by step. But first of all, just set your heart against anxiety. Say, Jesus has labored in these verses that I would not be anxious. And then just go through each of the aspects of it. One of the things he, he, he talks about I find interesting is the, the, he calls it the birds of the air. Uh, the, the grass of the field. Why does he say bird of the air, grass of the field? It has to do with its scope, its, its place in creation. Mm. So you, as a human being, have a place in creation. Keep in your lane, keep in your place. Don't expand in your mind beyond that. Keep in your place and know God gave you a body, he'll feed it and clothe it. And that's not why you were put in this world, to be fed and clothed. Mm. You're put in the world to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And, and the more you're consumed with the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the more anxieties will go away. That's beautiful. You know, you mentioned that one of the biggest issues really is just a concern about the future. How should we look at the future? Okay. First of all, we should know the future is uncertain. It's not necessarily going to be given to us. You know, 
Jesus himself said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. There is, for the most part, an overwhelming focus on something called today, capital T, in the book of Hebrews. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. All you will ever have for the rest of your life is today. Today is the opportunity to serve. Yesterday is gone. It's up in history in the record books. We'll see it in heaven. All right. The future may not even happen. And when it does come, it will have a new name today. So today you need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Live for him today. Doesn't mean you don't store up for retirement or make plans. I know all that. But what I am saying is we've got to zero in. So the future is uncertain. You don't even know it'll come. But it is in God's hands. And, and Jesus said, who of you by worrying can add a, literally says, a single cubit to his span? So I don't think it has to do with your height. I think it's like the length of your race. You're not going to add 18 inches to the finish line. All the days ordained for you are written in God's book before one of them came to be. So no, however many days you have in the future, they've been weighed out and measured by God. They're in God's hands. So I would say that we think about the future saying, if it comes, it comes with a purpose. Like the scripture says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad. And that's another today verse, by the way. When it comes, our desire will be to deal with it then the same way we should deal with today, which is to glorify God today. So we should realize that the future is in God's hands. He's got a purpose for it. It may never come. What we really have is today. Let's live for today for the glory of God. And when the future comes, you will actually be shaping and molding the future by how you act today. If you put sin to death today, you'll have less sin to put to death tomorrow. If you build up habits of righteousness today, it'll go even better for you tomorrow. You memorize scripture today, you'll be more equipped for God's service tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So do today maximally to the glory of God. Uh, one of my one of my preaching professors, who also used to be incidentally a strength coach for Alabama, he said he used to say to the team, "Win today." There you go. And so win today. Do what God has called us to today. How does Romans eight thirty eight and thirty nine help us? Romans eight is a great chapter, and so again, I think what Romans eight is all about uh, many things, but it's about hope mm-hmm. that God has given us the Scripture in general to work hope in us. Now, what is hope? Defined it earlier. It is a settled assurance, a vigorous assurance that the future is bright based on the promises of God. So what Paul says there is don't fear the future. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he says these words, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither neither angels nor demons, listen to this, neither the present nor the future, Mm. there it is, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is an electing, sovereign love that finishes your salvation. It's not just, I love you, but I got to send you to hell. That, that was dealt with in Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. So that's going to happen. So nothing's going to separate us from that electing, sovereign, perfecting love of God in Christ Jesus. And that includes the future. Nothing in the future will happen that will separate you from God's electing purpose. So I think Romans 8 helps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and foundational to our hope is the resurrection. So how does the resurrection also feed our hope as we look 
Well, I could have said, and I did say Romans 8.29. Uh, Romans 8.28 says uh, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to resurrect us in Christ-like glory. But Jesus himself said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So just knowing that God has sent his son to save me and raise me up in resurrection glory on the final day should drive out all anxieties about the future. Well, any final thoughts, Andy, before you pray for us? I think we should say, search me, O God, and know me. Show me where I'm fearful, what my fears are. Show me where I'm anxious, what my idols are that are causing anxiety. And God, help me to rise up in faith based on scripture to drive out fear and anxiety for the glory of God. Praise God. Will you pray for us? Absolutely. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, for its perfection. Thank you for the things that Wes and I have been able to talk about today. I pray that as we have studied depression for weeks and as we've also looked today at fear and anxiety, help us to use the truths of the word of God and specifically of the gospel of our salvation through faith in Christ to drive out depression, anxiety, and fear to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.